Welcome to the Church at Lake Mead, and this is our sermon podcast. Today is January 23rd, and Pastor Brad forges ahead with part two in this new sermon series called Fool's Gold, Exposing the Lie of Sin. Let's check it out. Well, hey guys, we are going to jump back into our series that we started a couple weeks ago called Fool's Gold, Exposing the Lie of Sin. And I want to kind of remind you, because two weeks seems like two years sometimes, so I want to remind you a little bit of what we talked about in that first sermon and jump into today's text. But two weeks ago, we uh, were introduced to a poetic, uh, kind of a poetic depiction of two ladies. And if you remember, uh, this comes from the book of Proverbs in the Bible, and it's Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Both are calling out to the simple, Both are inviting the passerbys into their houses to learn, but that's where their similarities end, right? Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly have very different messages. Lady Wisdom says, come and learn of me and live. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Lady Wisdom's message. But Lady Folly is much different, right? Lady Folly says, stolen water is sweet and food eaten in secret is delicious. And we said that Lady Folly tempts us into decisions that release the beast of chaos into our lives. And the thing about chaos, the thing about this concept of chaos, that's being kind of just released into our life when we walk outside of God's plan and outside of God's will and God's laws, uh, it, it never is predictable. And that's part of the tricky part about sin is because it it never happens the same way twice. We get away, quote unquote, with it sometimes. Chaos doesn't doesn't do the same thing each time. And we see someone else kind of do something and they don't seem to have consequences, at least not right now. And, And so the tricky part about sin, the deception part here, is that you never can really quite predict how chaos will, what chaos will do, what that beast will do. But what you can predict is that when you unlock that, that beast, when you release that, that beast from that cage, there is a fallout ahead for us in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so we said this uh, two weeks ago, whenever we see a don't in scripture, we should always include hurt yourself right after because that's exactly why the don't is there. God isn't trying to keep you from fun. He's not trying to keep you from having a good time. He's trying to keep you from hurting yourself because every time we make those choices, invariably, that's exactly what happens. Well, today we wanna go into our second topic in this series. And uh, this is the one sermon I was looking so forward to in this, in this series, this one and next week, actually. Uh, And and, and what what we wanna do in this series or in this sermon is we wanna give some theological context to the whole idea of good and evil, right and wrong. We wanna put this into the bigger biblical narrative. We need to understand this whole battle between good and evil within its bigger, broader setting. Because I believe if we understand the why, we'll have a better better chance of actually obeying what God's telling us to do. 
Just like when you were young and your parents uh, gave you some kind of rule and at some point when you got old enough, you started asking the why question. Why? Why can't I do that? Why can't I go to his house? Why can't I drive that? Whatever it was, right? Why can't I eat that? Right? Those kinds of things. Uh, it's when you get to that point in your development, it, it's time for you to get the, those why questions. And so that's what we want to do today. We want to put the big why into it and try to explain it from the biblical point of view. So what I want to do is I want to kind of answer a question that many of us are asking when it comes to sin. And it's this, what's so wrong with having just a little fun, right? What's so bad about just a little kind of what we would call fun or maybe a little more sophisticated version of that question is, man, if sin is so wrong, why is it so appealing, right? If it's so bad and so forbidden and I shouldn't do it, why is it just something inside of me that's drawn to it so much? Well, in 2005, um, the rapper Kanye West, who now just goes by Ye, I guess he just shortened it up last week or last month or whatever it was, um, uh, he came out with a, 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 a song known as Addiction. And I'm not gonna rap it for you, but I, I know, yeah, you were hoping for that. But I will rhyme it for you. Cause I, I was like, if I just read the lyrics, they don't quite do it. So I'll try to rhyme it for you. Okay, here, here are these lyrics and catch, catch this. this. Why everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good. Everything they told me not to is exactly what I would. Man, I tried to stop man. I tried the best I could, but you make me smile. What's your addiction? Is it money? Is it girls? Is it weed? I've been, I've been afflicted, not by one, not two, but all three. She's got the same thing about me, but more about us. She's coming over, so I guess that means I'm her drugs. He goes on, but then he repeats that question. Why is everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Why indeed? That is our question. Why indeed? Why is it that way? Well, I wanna start by looking at a verse in Romans that I have read a hundred times or more in my life. And I've, I've read this verse so often and I usually am reading this verse in its context of sharing the good news with somebody about Jesus. And I read this verse and I'm, I'm using this verse to explain that, that this person, whoever I'm talking to needs Jesus. And, and here's the verse, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I, I use this verse and I'm explaining the good news to someone. I'm saying, listen, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. This is what this text says. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. And so the first few phrases are pretty easy to understand. Or all have sinned. I, I kind of understand what that means. And I understand what it means to fall short. But what I always do, and maybe you've done this too, is I, I kind of don't understand what the glory of God means. And so I interpret it, right? Here's what I say. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standards. For all have sinned and fallen short of, of God's righteousness. And so God is here and I'm, I'm here and there's this gap between us. And, and because of my sin, I've fallen short. And, and obviously that's true, but that's not what Paul says here in Romans 3. He could have written that. He could have written, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. But he didn't. He said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what does that mean? What is, what is he saying when he says, 
the glory of God. The Greek word behind the word glory is the word doxa. And in the Bible, the word glory or doxa is always associated with light. Do you remember the shepherds? They're feeding their sheep and it's, uh, it's the, the Christmas Eve scene, remember? And all of a sudden the angels appear in Luke 2. And the text says that the a glory of the Lord shone round about them. And if you read the King James, they were sore afraid. You remember that, right? They were very afraid, right? And so there's a connection between the glory of God and light. There's this connection all through um, the Bible between glory and light. So Brad, is he saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the light of God? Is that what we're trying to say? Not quite. In fact, there's a connection between God's light, God's glory. He, remember, he lives in unapproachable light, the text says. Our God is a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews says. So there's a connection between God's essence, who he is, and his glory and the light that shines. Remember uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You guys remember that? We're talking face melting kind of glory. That's why you can't just walk into God's presence and live. You with me on that? Anyone watch that movie? Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. If you're my age or older, you know what I'm talking about, right? God is this powerful being who is light. Okay, so what is Paul saying? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This actually is a reference to our creation. In Genesis chapter one, we are told the purpose that God had when he made humanity. Let's look at this, Genesis one. Then God said, let us make mankind, this is actually, actually a, a, a gender neutral word. So a better translation for our purposes would be humankind, okay? So, let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is a reference. I'm telling you that what Paul says in Romans is a reference to our creation in Genesis. And I'm gonna make that connection. Remember, God said, I'm gonna create you in our image. I'm gonna create humanity in our image. And what did that mean to be made in the image of God? What did that mean to the, to the first readers of this text, to the people group that first had Genesis? It would have been a reference to what was in the ancient Near Eastern temples and those temples all around would be the images of the deities. Uh, the interesting thing about Yahweh though, is that he never wanted humans to create a graven image. Why? Because we are his image. And so the other gods around the nations would create these representatives of the deity, these statues that were to, were to represent the deity, to, to bear the deity's image, but not with Yahweh, not with the people of God. We are his image. And what, 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 what did the ancient people think when they saw an image of a God in a temple? It was a reflection of that God. It, they didn't believe that statue was actually that, that God, but they believed that that statue reflected or represented that deity. And this gives you a picture of really what God is saying in Genesis chapter one. He's saying that I'm creating humanity to be my reflection to be my image bearers, to reflect my glory. Notice the, the, the job that we have is to rule over creation. 
Now, when we see that word rule, we interpret that word in a certain way today. And let me give you an illustration. If I said to my daughter, Taryn, hey, Taryn, um, mom and I are going on a date tonight and I'm going to let you rule over your sisters while we're gone, right? You get to rule over them while we're gone. When I get home, there's going to be problem most likely because one of them will be locked up somewhere. The other will be, I don't know, doing Taryn's laundry, I'm sure. Because we always, today, we associate the word rule with dominate, with to uh, be over in a, in a subjecting way. But that isn't what God meant in Genesis 1. To rule over creation doesn't mean to dominate, but it means to reflect the wise rule of Yahweh. Humans were to reflect his, his glory in just the same way that Yahweh ruled over heaven. Humans are, were the counterparts to Yahweh on earth and we were to reflect God's glory and rule over creation just as God was ruling in heaven. Theologian N.T. Wright thinks the best way of really picturing this is with an angled mirror. So that's what this is here. Let's see if I can do this. Is it blinding anyone out there? Okay, it's over there. So unless you're sitting over there, you're okay. So an angled mirror. This is exactly how you and I can kind of get our mind around this concept is as God reflects his doxa, his, his glory from heaven, it shines onto humanity and we were to reflect that into creation. And so this angled mirror is, um, is the picture of us ruling over creation. Well, let's move into Genesis 3. And you know, if you're a Bible student, you kind of know what's, what's ahead for us. We don't stay like this for long. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, what did God actually say? Because uh, Eve is paraphrasing. And if you really wanted to get technical, Eve wasn't created yet when God told Adam the original command. So let's compare what Eve says to what God actually said. This is, uh, go to the, yeah, chapter two. This is where God's command is actually recorded. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Is that a little different? Do you see a little difference between how Eve paraphrases this, right? Uh, God is giving us the freedom. I love that word free. You're free to eat any tree in this garden, right? But you must not eat from the tree that's of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, back to our discussion with Eve and the serpent. Chapter three, verse three, or four. You will not certainly die, <laughs> the serpent says. You won't certainly die. Now, if we were to study the syntax of the Hebrew language, what we're gonna find here is that what the snake is actually saying to Eve is death isn't really that immediate you don't really need to worry about it, right? Satan is a, he's what he's doing in this temptation here. And what we're gonna, what we're gonna get right here, guys, is we're gonna get a primer, a, a teaching on, on an anatomy of a temptation. We are gonna analyze what a temptation is doing. We're gonna study a temptation in the original form here. 
And what Satan is saying to Eve is, you know, honestly, you don't need to worry about the consequences, right? And in fact, he's saying there's nothing really to worry about. It's the gambler's logic, right? Kind of the thing that Vegas is based on, focused on only what you could gain, not what you're gonna lose or potentially lose, right? So that's what Satan is saying here in the, in the, you know, in the serpent. He's saying, you won't certainly die. Verse five, look at this. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What, what Satan now attacks is the character of God. And I wanna make a point here as we, as we get into this. Every time we're tempted to walk outside of what God has for us in any way, What's at the root of it is this statement, God is not good. Every time I'm being tempted to walk away from what God has for me, a command he's given me, a do not that's in scripture, it's always at the root of it, it's always a question, can I really trust God? And I'm not sure I can. And so at the root of every temptation is this, is this crucial question, do you believe, do I believe that God is good? Because if I really believe God is good and I really believe he has got my best interests at heart, then temptation isn't worth it, right? But that's the problem. We're gonna really get into that. And so this is what he's, he's tempting Eve with. He's, he's putting this seed in her heart that God is holding back from her. God has withheld something good from her. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so you see this congruence between what the serpent has said and what Eve sees, right? There seems to be a match. What he's saying about this fruit seems to match what Eve has seen about the fruit. There's this congruence. He says it's good and it looks good, right? He says it's gonna benefit me and it seems like it will benefit me. Do you see where I'm at on this, right? There's this pattern that we see in scripture. This pattern of, of a temptation that's a questioning God's goodness and following that is now I'm being led to make a moral decision outside of God's plan. What she doesn't know is her eyes are gonna be open, that's true, but not in the way Satan alluded. It's gonna be open to her shame. For the first time in Eve's existence, she's gonna experience fear. She's gonna experience a self-awareness that brings shame. She's gonna realize she's naked and she's gonna run and she's gonna to wanna to cover herself and hide. No longer is she in this innocent state. Now she's self-aware and with that self-awareness, and this is kind of key, with that self-awareness comes self-centeredness. And so what's happened in our story? Here's what's happened in our story. This beautiful mirror that God created to reflect his glory is now broken. So I'm not shining in the, except for my, my eyes. Don't look at that. It's a broken mirror. You've heard us talk about the brokenness of sin and how humans are broken. This is a good way of illustrating this. And this now makes more sense of what Romans 3 is saying. Remember Romans 3? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are no longer angled mirrors reflecting God's glory the way we were designed to. And this opens up a host of issues for us as humans. We have these 
fissures, these cracks, these broken places that now our, our desires are disordered to use that word. Instead of wanting to just glorify God, instead of wanting to just be his, his angled mirror that just shines glory into the world, what happens now is I'm, I'm, I'm fractured in such a way that what I think is good simply is what I think is good for me. And I put my desires, I put my wants, I put my, my intentions ahead of what God wants and a lot of times ahead of what you want. And so now we have this situation where um, we, we understand the cosmic story of good and evil, right? We were made in a certain way to be a certain way and now we're broken. And here's one of the major consequences of that. I can no longer trust my moral reasoning. This is so important. I can no longer trust that what I think is good, what I think is right, is lining up with what God thinks and what God says, right? Because I have this crack. I still am able to morally reason, but I have a defect in my moral reasoning. And this, this really is a pattern all through scripture. And you see this in, if you read the stories through the, the Old Testament, you see this pattern of people being offered something. There's a desire, right? And the Bible Project, by the way, does a great job at this if you wanna look it up and do more study. But there's this desire and the desired and then this grasping that's just a pattern all through scripture, all through the Old Testament of this object that's desired, the person that's desiring, and then this act of grasping, taking. And you see this um, even in our own lives, friends. You see that the sin of the garden is the sin of saying, I'm gonna use my reasoning and I'm gonna make a decision based on what's good for me or I think. And so in that, we each commit the sin of eating from the tree of the good knowledge of good and evil. I've made that choice and so have you. I've made that decision, right? I know what's best for me. I know I probably shouldn't, but, how many of you, Eddie used to say that a lot. I know I shouldn't, but. I know I shouldn't do this. I know, I know it's probably not a good idea, but. And there I am, eating of that tree, eating of that fruit, just like Eve so many years ago. In Judges chapter 21, this is how the writer of Judges kind of concludes what's the terrible spiral that Israel got into. In those days, Israel had no king, and the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. See, this is what happens. Sin obscures our ability to love well. There's an inverse relationship between sin and love. The more filled with uh, sin my life is, the less capacity I have to love. Because sin and selfishness are so linked and love is the opposite of selfishness. There's this connection between sin and selflessness. I can't be selfless as long as I have sin in my heart. I, 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 have this, I have this broken moral compass. And so I wanna introduce two concepts and we're gonna only talk about one today and the next one will be next week. And today I wanna talk about the effect that my brokenness has on my ability to reason. And I'm gonna talk for the last few minutes we have together on the way sin deceives me. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, I want, to, I want you to read this text with me. Here's what it says. The God of this age, let's all say the word, has blinded. blinded. Okay, that's part of you. We'll get you all in here. The minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the, there you go, of the gospel that displays the, of Christ who is the, wow, isn't that interesting? We have all of our words in one passage here, right? We have light, glory, and image. 
And so let me tell you the biblical story, right? So the biblical story is that humanity has fallen. We've, bro we've been broken. We were these angled mirrors to reflect God's glory. But now we've made a decision to step outside of God's plan. And so what did God do? He sent Jesus, the perfect one. He sent Jesus, the one who is not a broken mirror, but in fact, he is God's only son into the world. And what, what the story of redemption is, is, is that God wants to restore humanity, not back to Adam, but we have an even bigger future ahead for us. God wants to store, restore humanity's brokenness into the image now of Jesus. This is why the story of the New Testament is honestly unexpected and, and, and completely unimaginable because God isn't gonna just change us back to how we were before the fall. God is gonna give us a brand new existence in his son. But here's the crazy part. We're sharing this gospel with the, the, the world. We're telling people about Jesus. But, but when they hear the gospel, this text says that their eyes are blinded or their hearts, their minds are blinded and they can't see the good news of Jesus. Here's what Paul says in the next verse. He says, for, we preach, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So if you guys are tracking with me this morning, I know this is kind of a heavy sermon, but track, hang with me, we're almost there. I want you to catch this. What the gospel is, is God taking his light, his doxa, his glory, into the face of Jesus and shining into my heart. Because if I were to take, and I won't, if I were to take my broken mirror and put it in front of this mirror, the mirror of Jesus, God's light shines into Jesus and into my heart. And guess what starts to happen? My brokenness starts to be transformed. Look at this text in 2 Corinthians chapter three. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the, now the spirit of the Lord, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And here's this next verse, hit this one for me. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So this is the, power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that our brokenness is brought in front of Jesus's perfection. And as the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus, it shines into our hearts. And slowly over time, as we walk with Jesus, as we contemplate Jesus, as we look and behold Jesus, as we do that in a community of believers, what, what starts to happen, even on this side of the grave, is our brokenness, our fractures begin to heal. In, can I get an amen? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we can be set free. In Jesus' name, our, our healing can happen. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that even though we were broken, even though we had fallen short of God's glory, he hadn't abandoned his human project, but, do, but did the unimaginable, became a human himself to do what we couldn't so that we could become what we, what we can't. That's the power of the gospel. 
And so I wanna, I wanna, I wanna conclude today with something that I really want us each to think about deeply because we haven't been fully sanctified. That's a big fancy word for fully transformed. We are still in process and we still are on this side of eternity. And the truth of the matter is, even though we have God's spirit inside of us, even though we've started this process of transformation, sin can still deceive us. Sin can still look awful tempting and awful, awful uh, inviting. And I wanna show you this text in Hebrews. And then we're gonna kind of sit with this church and we're gonna think about this. But look at this, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, he's talking to Christians. Make sure that your own hearts aren't, aren't evil and unbelieving, turning away. Remember the other text says, when you turn to the Lord, right? You start to behold him and are transformed. But look what happens, you can also turn away from the living God. We must warn each other every day while it's still today so that none of you will be, there it is, what's that word? Deceived by sin and hardened in your hearts. See, sin has this capacity to deceive us, even Christians, even those of us who've had our eyes unveiled and we've seen the truth and we've experienced the light of the gospel and the change of the gospel, we're still not immune to the deceptions of sin. I wish it were not so, but it is. There's not one of us in this room, including myself, that cannot be deceived by sin tomorrow or even today. I love the text. It says, tell uh, while we're together, right? Tell each other. This implies a community. You need a community of people around you saying, hey, come on, man, don't listen. That's the, that serpent twisting your mind again. You're being deceived. Hey, come on. You, I know you've walked with Jesus a long time, but you can still be deceived. Can I get an amen to that? No one wants to amen that. Oh, what am I thinking? Nobody wants to amen that, right? Look what he says at the end. Is there one more verse here? If we are faithful to the end, trusting God as firmly as when you first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. You see, the reason why something that seems so bad feels so good, something that God says is so wrong, in my mind, seems so good, is because I have had disordered, disordered desires because of my brokenness. And if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong set of temptations coming down the road, I'll grab from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, making a decision that says, this really looks good for me. I'm gonna make this choice. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna end today and I wanna ask a question. How do I know? How do I know if I'm being deceived? How do I know if I'm really kind of caught in that, in that spider's web? It's an inherent problem with deception because when you're truly deceived, you believe something that's invalid is valid. I mean, is that not the definition, right? So here's a couple diagnostic questions. How do I know if I'm being deceived? Number one, am I rejecting really good advice? <laughs> so 
somebody loves me, they're telling me something, it's really good advice. And for some reason, I just now, you know, normally I think that would be good advice, but not in my case. Red flag. Am I keeping secrets? Honestly, do I tell people half truths? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How's that, how's that addiction that you, you, you wanted accountability? Oh, it's fine. Or how's that, that one struggle that you, you shared with me? Oh, it's good. But you know that you're keeping secrets. Even when you hear yourself, there's this little twinge in your heart that says you're really not telling them everything. You're, you're giving them the best sanitized version of that story. Am I isolating? Yeah, I used to be a part of a life group. You know, at another church, I was really connected to a life group. You know, I, before COVID, we were at that life group all the time. Or I have really good friends we check in with. I love Evan. He has a really cool discipline of, of a, of a, of a long-term relationship he's had with this guy. I think the guy's moved to Texas now, but he still calls him on a regular and consistent basis because for Evan, that's one of his like guys that he just trusts in, a faithful friend that he's not gonna isolate away from. Last one, how about this? This goes back to last sermon. Am I justifying folly? Am I justifying unwise behavior? I know it's probably not smart, but I know I probably shouldn't, but remember Lady Folly? Church, I want us right now just to have a time just to sit with this message. And I want us um, just to think about the freedom that we have in Jesus. To acknowledge that how I might be thinking of something is probably not correct. That's why I need brothers and sisters. That's why I need God's spirit to continue to illuminate my eyes. I have to make choices that say, okay, God, I recognize my tendency, my propensity to deception. I'm a human. I have to have people to help correct my vision. I have to have people I trust to show me my blind areas. So what I want us to do as a church, can we just stand right where we are? And we're just gonna have Carolina sing over us. And I just want us to respond in prayer to this. There's a few different ways you could respond to this, right? Number one way you could respond is you could just lay your heart out before the Lord Jesus and you could say, God, I remember when I first met you and the light of the glory of the face of Jesus just shined into my heart. I remember that. Oh, I remember the innocence of those first days with Jesus when I just felt clean. The first love, as it says in in Revelation, right? The first love. God, if I'm being honest, maybe this is your prayer and I wanna help you pray. God, if I'm being honest, I have walked away from you in some ways. If I'm being honest, Lord, I I I have allowed the slow fade of deception to take my eyes off of Jesus and I repent. And maybe that's you this morning. You just need to repent. You just need to come to Jesus and come without fear, without without shame. That's not how I want you to come. You just come to Jesus, just like you first did and just say, Jesus, I just, I repent. If I'm being honest, Lord, I've allowed 
my life to justify things. I've allowed things that I know isn't right and I've explained it away and I've had an excuse and I've done whatever and, and Lord, I'm done with that. God, I don't wanna live that way. I do not wanna live in the, in the garden with the tree, continue to eat from the knowledge of good and evil, thinking I'm making the right choice when I know it's death. Maybe that's your prayer. Or maybe your prayer is for somebody that's not here or somebody that's in your family or somebody that's in your circle and, and you just believe, Lord, that they're, they're, they're being deceived. And so you wanna bring your friend before the Lord and you wanna intercede for them. And so maybe your prayer is, Father, I just bring my friend before you. I bring my child before you. I bring my spouse before you. God, open their eyes to truth. They don't see that they're deceived. They don't see that they're entangled. God, open their eyes. And so maybe you're praying for them. Take a minute, pray. I wanna actually open up the, uh, an opportunity for us to pray with each other. If you're willing to pray with somebody else, would you just step out into the aisle way or into the front or in the back? And would you just make yourself available? And if you would like just someone to pray with you about something, you don't have to confess your deepest, darkest things. Just say, hey, would you...